Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our treatment of special topics, special topics that are tailored to your questions, right? And as I have asked from you to send me your questions, those questions that are burning on your heart, you have done so, and so much so that I have received a number of questions. So what I thought I would do is kind of treat some of these questions over the period of weeks. You know, I think what's going to really start to happen here is I get so inundated with so many questions that maybe we treat more than one or two questions. But for now, I want to treat these thoroughly. So this evening, what I thought we would do is, is take up the question of Genesis and more specifically the relationship between Darwin and Genesis. So this evening's subject matter is really going to have us talking about just not creation, but also just more generally how to approach sacred scripture in the light of faith and reason. This will certainly have us considering faith and reason. Now, as I say that, I want all of you to understand that (laughs) I know I'm not answering all of your questions because by answering one or two of your questions, you have so many other questions. My hope is that in answering the one or two questions that I'm answering, I'm giving you a deeper understanding of how to approach uh, maybe your other questions. That is to say, I'm handing on to you principles so as to better interpret maybe some of your other questions. Uh, And in saying that, I want to bring your attention to some books, especially as it relates to uh, this evening's subject matter and Genesis, science, and faith. I want to direct your attention to Scott Hahn's Reasons to Believe and Trent Horn's Hard Sayings, A Catholic Approach to Answering Bible Difficulties. I am, in fact, going to draw from Trent Horn this evening. This book is one of the more recent books that have come out from Catholic Answers that, I tell you what, answers so many different questions about sacred scripture, certainly questions we have talked about in the past, and even to some extent over the last three weeks, month. But for this evening, I I would encourage you to get your hand on this book if you can, Hard Sayings, A Catholic Approach to Answering Bible's Difficulties, and also, Peter Kreft's You Can Understand the Bible, a Practical and Illuminating Guide to Each Book in the Bible. Peter Kreft, as you know, if you're a faithful listener, is one of my favorite authors, and there are so many pearls of wisdom. There are so many gems. I was just talking about how, in answering one or two questions, so many other questions are going to come up. From Peter Kreft's You Can Understand the Bible, to Scott Hahn's Reasons to Believe, to Trent Horn's Hard Sayings, I assure you, many of your other questions will be answered. And we answer your questions so you can push forward in your faith. That's very important. I know that there are certain questions out there that because they haven't been answered, we just stop in our faith. And so we seek to answer those questions. Okay, all that being said, this relationship between Darwin and Genesis, what is the question? What is the claim? That when you interpret Genesis in light of Darwin's discoveries, we see that ultimately it's false. So is that true? Well, when it comes to proving the Bible 
and how it contradicts science. Many people certainly go to the first chapter of Genesis, and this will be so much of our subject matter this evening. Uh, Trent Horn, in this vein, goes to the author Michael Shermer, the editor of Skeptic Magazine, and just kind of goes to the heart of it here. Michael Shermer in Skeptic Magazine once wrote, Young Earth creationists, for example, believe that the world was created around 6,000 years ago, about the same time that the Babylonians invented beer. (laughs) These claims cannot both be correct, and anyone who thinks the former is right has relegated all of science, along with brains, to the dumpster of life. I think that kind of gets to the heart of the question and to the heart of the claim. So what we have to first understand is that the Bible's authors never assert, much less say, what the age of the universe or the earth is. Christians who believe that creation itself is only a few thousand years old come to that conclusion by counting up the years included in the genealogies of the Old Testament. Uh, The most famous attempt to date comes from the 17th century Anglican Archbishop James Usher. He said the world was created in the year 4004 BC on the night before Sunday, October 23rd. However, my friends, the genealogies in the Bible cannot be used to date the age of the universe because they were not meant to be exact chronicles of history. In some cases, what you find is that generations were omitted in order to make a symbolic point. The genealogies in Scripture were primarily focused on showing how different people were related to one another, not necessarily how long they lived. So in contrast to Usher's exactness, if you will, the Catholic Church does not teach that either the earth or the physical universe is of any particular age. The First Vatican Council, in fact, only requires Catholics to believe that what? The world and all things which are contained in it, both spiritual and material, as regards the whole substance, have been produced by God from nothing. You know, according to young earth creationists, The book of Genesis says that God created the world in six 24-hour days. According to the theory of evolution, life evolved over billions of years through a slow and gradual process. So the question that follows then is, does not Genesis contradict modern biology? Now, you may be surprised to learn that long before Darwin's theory of evolution was published in the mid-19th century, 1859. Critics of the church attacked the creation account in Genesis on more than one occasion. In the second century, there was a a pagan critic by the name of Celsus who mocked Genesis for describing the existence of days before the creation of the sun. He once wrote, by far the most silly thing is the distribution of the creation of the world over certain days before days existed. For as the heaven was not yet created, nor the foundation of the earth yet laid, nor the sun yet revolving, how could there be days? In the fourth century, a group of heretics called the Manichees, you've heard me talk about Manichaeism before, challenged the authority of sacred scripture by asking the question, how had God already divided earlier between day and night if this is done by the heavenly bodies now on the fourth day? Any reader, ancient or modern, should be puzzled by the fact that Genesis 1-3 describes how God created light on the first day, but created the sun, the thing that makes the light, on the fourth day. 
how do we explain this odd sequence of events? And Trent Horn, I think, gives a, a nice analogy in response to that question in so many ways, gets to the heart of so many questions that are behind the question surrounding Darwin and Genesis. He says, imagine you're trying to recount what happened on a recent family vacation. How would you tell the story? You could present it in chronological order and talk about the long drive to the beach, the mix-up checking into the hotel, the visit to grandma, then lounging on the beach, getting lost downtown, and stopping at a cheesy tourist trap on the way home. Or you could present it in more of a topical order. You could first tell someone about your favorite parts of the trip, going to the beach, seeing grandma, stopping at the tourist trap. Then you might follow this with a description of your least favorite parts of the trip, the boring drive, the mix-up at the hotel, and getting lost in an unfamiliar place. What is Trent Horn saying here? Well, he wants us to see and appreciate that both approaches would be valid ways of retelling the story. Even though one of them, the topical method, right, seems inaccurate if the listener assumed you were telling the story in a what? Chronological order. If you were to go back into the early church fathers and some of the great church writers, they understood this distinction and responded to their critics accordingly. In point of fact, the third century uh, church writer Origen said in his response to the, the pagan critic uh, Celsus, now who is there, pray, possessed of understanding that will regard the statement as appropriate that the first day and the second and the third, in which also both evening and morning are mentioned, existed without sun and moon and stars, the first day even without a sky. I do not suppose that anyone doubts that these things figuratively indicate certain mysteries, the history having taken place in appearance and not literally. St. Augustine responded to the Manichees in a similar fashion. He said that the fourth day of creation symbolically demonstrates how God gave the sun and moon authority to rule over the kingdoms created during the first three days. St. Augustine would also go on to say that he believed God created the world instantly. And I have always been one, oh, by the way, to believe this. <laughs> this is St. Augustine. The sacred writer was able to separate in the time of his narrative what God did not separate in time in his creative act. St. Augustine even proposed the idea that God could have planted within creation dormant seeds that would grow and take different forms over time, not unlike the change that occurs in living species through the process of evolution. Now, it is understandable that some people read Genesis as a literal description of God creating the world in six 24-hour days. That view uh, was certainly held by a number of church fathers. But there is an alternative way of reading Genesis that has come to be called the framework interpretation. This is the view that the six days of creation do not consist of a literal chronological description of events, but instead represents the human author's non-literal topical way of describing how God created the world. What would be an example of this? Well, in the first three days, God creates the realms where specific creatures will reside, the sky, the waters, the land, vegetation. He fills those realms in the next three days, creating the lights in the sky, 
birds and fish and land animals. This interpretation explains passages like Genesis chapter 1 verses 14 to 18, which describes God creating the sun on the fourth day, even though he had already created the realm where the sun or the light will reside on the first day. St. Augustine said that the author of Genesis described the creation account as occurring in six days because according to Greek mathematicians, six is a perfect number. A perfect number is one that can be reached by taking the numbers it can be divided into and adding them together. So according to St. Augustine, six represents how the world is perfected through the act of creation. If you were to go to paragraph 337 in the Catechism, we read, Scripture presents the work of the Creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work, and then concluded by the rest of the seventh day. Does not Jesus himself even say that this rest is symbolic because God, who sustains all of existence, has been working since the creation? Now, some of you might be asking, oh, wait, Joe, what do you mean? Six is the perfect number. I thought seven is the perfect number. Well, seven is the number of covenant life with God. So it's not in contradiction with one another, but should be seen in light of each other. He creates in six days, and on the seventh day, he enters into covenant relationship with man. Remember, the first time you see oath swearing in the Old Testament, and you see it between Abraham and Abimelech, you read of the Hebrew word shavah, which means to swear an oath, but also to seven oneself. The idea there is by exchanging seven ewe lambs, you're entering into a covenant relationship with man. Well, of course, with God, this is elevated into something extraordinary. And you can even play around with six and seven a little bit because we know that the number 666 is a sign of the beast. <laughs> Could we not say, my friends, that Satan is once again parroting God? He wishes to take what rightfully belongs to God and kind of turn it upside down, saying six is no longer a perfect number. No, that number belongs to me. God says, okay, six can belong to you because you are beastly, you are animal-like, but the seventh day belongs to me. Now when man enters into that seventh day, the Holy Sabbath, all the other days now reflect that. So here we shouldn't see this as a contradiction. Now, all of that being said, what's important for us to appreciate here is that a Catholic does not have to believe that God inspired the sacred writers to deliberately fashion a literal history of the world that is not literally true. Once again, we turn to the Catechism, paragraph 283. The findings of science have splendidly enriched our knowledge of the age and dimensions of the cosmos, the development of life forms, and the appearance of man. These discoveries invite us to even greater admiration for the greatness of the Creator, prompting us to give Him thanks for all His works and for the understanding and wisdom He gives to scholars and researchers. Does not Paul talk about this, my friends? The importance to look around us and see creation itself as a reflection of the Creator, and out from that truth, we might be drawn into a deeper relationship with God who is creator, yes, but first and foremost, God who is Father. God who is Father. The fact that a non-literal interpretation of Genesis was proposed 
1400 years before Darwin, shows that the current view is not a desperate attempt to explain away Genesis in light of the findings of evolutionary biology. Indeed, shortly after Darwin published his theory, the great Cardinal John Henry Newman remarked in a letter to a friend, and I love this one, Trenhorn has this quote, Mr. Darwin's theory need not then to be atheistical, be it true or not. It may simply be suggesting a larger idea of divine foreknowledge and skill. I like that. You know, we're talking about creation and days, and I have failed to make the point, maybe the most important point yet, that days in the Hebrew means what? Days as it relates to sequence, days as it relates to how we might measure something chronologically. The Hebrew word for day is yom, and this is a word that is often used non-quantitatively in Scripture. Purposes, not clocks, measures God's time, right? The very word yom speaks to purpose-driven time. And I say, my friends, maybe the most important point yet, because once we come to understand this truth, that days in of themselves are not measured by clocks, but rather by purpose, we come to understand that life itself is not measured by what clocks measure. How many of you are in a broken relationship or a broken friendship, and you have been waiting for someone to forgive you? Or maybe you have hurt someone and that someone is waiting for you to forgive them. Days pass by, weeks pass by, months pass by, and sadly, in some cases, years and the whole life passes by. And yet, what happened? No forgiveness. But you said to yourself along the way, well, it's been one month, one year, four years. It's about time that he or she has to forgive. And yet, they don't forgive. But you say to yourself, well, it's been four years. This is insanity. They need to forgive. And yet they don't forgive. You've used time to dictate what time cannot dictate. The heart. The heart, my friends. That is why this is the most important point I've made yet to this question. And what God really, in the end, wants us to see because if purpose measures time, then the heart measures time. The heart, maybe better said, defines time. Because now, once I realize that, once I don't use time itself as the barometer or the measuring stick to when someone should forgive, but the heart, now I enter into the spiritual dimension of time. I forgive you, we say, not because you've given me a reason to forgive you. I forgive you because this is what God has called me to. And this is my purpose as a Christian because this is what Christ revealed on the cross. You see, my friends, what we're talking about now is kairos and chronos. Kairos is graced time. Chronos is man's time. Chronos, more conventionally, is what we put into our iPads. It's what we schedule at 3 o'clock or 6 o'clock or 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. Kairos, that's God intervening into Kronos and in so doing, defining it anew in His grace. As I'm talking about this, I'm made to reflect upon an encounter I had with a professor 
oh gosh, 20 years ago now. I remember he walked into the room. He said, well, class, I have an announcement to make. We kind of all turned our attention to him. Oh, he's got an announcement to make. He says, we have redefined time. I thought to myself, redefined time? What is he talking about? He said, you see, students, we are no longer going to define time chronologically as B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini in the Latin year of our Lord, but B.C.E. and C.E., before Common Era and Common Era. And I remember I raised my hand just a few seconds after that brief presentation of how we have redefined time and changed time, changed chronology. And I asked, but you still have to reconcile one point. What is that? The fact that there's still someone in human history that defines BCE and CE. You can use whatever acronym you want, but in the end, my point to the professor was, God is still in the middle. God is still in the middle. Not much was said from the professor. A whole lot was said from other students being critical of my simple observation, but I pose it to you. A simple observation. (laughs) We can talk about history and time in all these different ways, but when you go into history and appreciate how God has worked in time, what you come to discover is that the, the harder you work to remove God from our history, the more you realize that God has been alive and well in history, okay? So, certainly essential to our subject matter this evening. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't speak to a very important principle of biblical interpretation, and that is the literal sense, how the Bible itself contains many different literary styles. Although some books of the Bible are written in genres that literally narrate historical events, and I think we've dotted this out before in past programs, if you were to go into the Old Testament, if you want the historical narrative, you have Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Maccabees, and then uh, Luke, and the book of Acts. Of course, Luke authors Acts, and in those 14 books, you have the historical narrative, and within Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the description of Jesus's ministry uh, described historically. So, all that being said, it would be an error to think that every book of the Bible, not to mention every part of every book, was composed in that historical style. My dear friends, the Bible is a collection of many different books, that exhibit a variety of literary styles. According to the Pontifical Biblical Commission, in the Bible, we find different literary genres in use in that cultural area. Poetry, prophecy, narrative, eschatological sayings, so sayings about the end times, parables, hymns, confessions, so on and so forth. All of which, in its own way, as the PBC mentions, presents truth. Now, some of these genres are strictly historical, but again, others are poetic, using fictional elements to communicate their message to the reader. These may include the story of Job's endurance of suffering, 
Or for that matter, Jesus' story about the prodigal son. Did the prodigal son really happen? Well, we see it in our own life all the time. But did the actual story of the prodigal son really happen? In one of St. John Paul II's Wednesday audiences, he described how other Old Testament books fit this genre. This is JP2. The books of Tobit, Judith, and Esther, although dealing with the history of the chosen people, have the character of allegory and moral narrative rather than history properly so called. What is an allegory? An allegory is the description of one thing under the image of another. So even if Job, Tobit, and the prodigal son did not exist as historical individuals, the beneficial truths found in these stories, that we should have faith in God even when we suffer, that every man is your neighbor, and so on and so forth, are not diminished in any way by their having fictional protagonists. Now, of course, a critic might object that if Job and Jonah did not exist, then maybe Jesus and Peter never existed either. Maybe the entire Bible is didactic fashion. Certainly people believe this. But my friends, that is an extraordinary leap in logic. It is as unwarranted as saying that because a library contains books of fiction, well, it follows that every book in a library is fiction. Brothers and sisters, like any piece of literature, we can examine the genre of a particular scripture passage and see what kind of message it communicates. When we do that, we find that categorizing our Lord's life or his resurrection as helpful fictions does not make sense of the biblical data. We have been talking about reason a lot. We should include, as I noted off the top, a word about faith. I'm holding up my Bible right now, and I'm telling you that before this is a history book, it is a religious book, because it concerns itself with first and foremost what but the fall. So the moment you reduce this book, the Bible, to something that is exclusively history, it ceases to serve its purpose. But once you interpret the Bible in the light of faith and begin to study it's a literal sense. What a beautiful harmony we begin to see. And that is the harmony of Kairos and Kronos. How God has worked in time in salvation history. What does the word history mean? Historia in the Latin. To weave a pattern. When you approach sacred scripture with faith and reason, you begin to see the beautiful pattern. That is how God works in salvation history. Sacred scripture itself is a canvas in which God writes his beautiful story of salvation history. History is to weave a pattern, but it is also his story. History that belongs to God. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.